You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. You know what should be illegal? <laughs> Lots of things. What? This is my, I am now a one issue voter. Uh, you're not on this Detroit Lions thing again, no, are you? Okay, all right. I'm a one issue voter, and I can't wait. I, will, I can't wait to hear this. I will support whichever candidate makes it a criminal offense to take the elevator up or down a single floor. <laughs> okay. If you <laughs> that go, is annoying. If I am on the freaking eleventh floor, mm-hmm. and I get on the elevator, mm-hmm. and I'm riding that puppy all the way down. Right. I'm ready to leave and go home, go to the gym, go to dinner, wherever I'm going. And it slows to a stop at the second floor to let your lazy ass get on and go down one stairs, floor. down, down one stairs, floor. one floor. Mm. I want you to know that I am judging you so harshly. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I thought you were going to say talking on your cell phone in public in on speaker on, on speaker. That should be there. Ought Apple ought to figure out a way that if you're in a crowded room, that it just doesn't let you do your speaker. <laughs> it, should, it, should, it, it can should, ping like a air pings, tag, you know. The other one goes, yeah. Oh, you know what? There's a you're in a stadium, so you need to yeah, maybe a little asshole be quiet. prevention mm. uh, feature. You could turn it off, but it's a little you know a little feature. Yeah. I like that. Look at us making the world a better place. We are making the world a better place. Yeah. Yeah. If you find someone at your local elevator riding it up one floor or talking on the speakerphone on the subway, um, I I encourage you to report them. You should encourage you to go to the authorities and report them. (laughs) Speaking of reporting people. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I watched I watched the documentary. I know you're trying to get into it. I was watching a documentary on Edward Snowden. And I was going to watch the movie with, uh, what's his name? Joseph Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And I decided to watch the John Stossel interview with him. It was really good. It was like an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. You know, he's talking from Russia because he can't go, you know, can't leave because he's trapped over there. And it got me thinking that our opinion of whistleblowers really is driven by what our opinion of who they're blowing the whistle on. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're blowing the whistle on, on a, big tobacco, on you're big a tobacco, you're a hero. If you're blowing it on the government and your party's in power, you don't like them. You think they're a traitor, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of people when Edward Snowden first came out and, and blew the whistle, uh, they thought he was a traitor. And then over time, oh, maybe, you know, maybe he wasn't. Maybe he wasn't such a bad guy. I changed my tune on him Mm -hmm. big time once I started hearing what he had to say. It's a shame that essentially nothing has come out of his revelation. Well, that guy paid a price. I mean, he had to basically live in exile. He's getting a Russian citizenship now because he didn't have a choice. He can't after being there for twelve years or so. He can't. He can't leave. Mm -hmm. The government took his passport away while he was stopping through Russia. I mean, he was on his way somewhere. I think he was on his way to Cuba. Yeah. And they just invalidated his passport while he was over there, just stuck him over there. I think it was a PR move. An intentional decision to strand him in Russia, you think? Oh, for sure. To make him seem like he's hiding out in Russia. That's interesting. I always thought he had 
chosen to go to Russia. I did. I reason. did too until I heard him talk. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, speaking of whistleblowers, today we talked to an expert on whistleblowers um, or an expert on defending whistleblowers. Andrew Beato is the chair of the False Claims Act and Whistleblower Practice Group at Stein, Mitchell, Beato, and Misner LLP. His practice focuses on representing whistleblowers in the United States and abroad. He has substantial experience representing clients in high-profile government fraud investigations with state and federal agencies, including the DOJ, state attorneys general offices, the FDA, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Security Exchange Commission, Internal Revenue Service, and the Department of Defense. He has represented clients in complex international whistleblower claims involving financial entities alleged to have violated tax securities, commodities, and healthcare laws. The whistleblowers represented by Andrew and his team have contributed to more than $3.5 billion in payments to federal and state governments, including $2.6 billion paid by Credit Suisse for conspiring to aid and assist taxpayers in filing false returns. What do you, what do you think his cut of that was? Um, I bet it was 40% of 15%. <laughs> I bet he made a couple hundred million dollars. Jesus. I, you know, he whether, we're, we're, you're I speculating. Know his, I don't know. I'm speculating. Yeah, you he should have. You should that. have asked him when you t- when you were talking. To him. Well, you know, I can do math. Yeah, that's what a normal claim would be. Forty um, percent of it would be on the high end, but you know what? A lot. We're going to go with all, no, more than fifty bucks. Yeah. I would say. Right. I learned a lot from our conversation with Andrew. He's a really smart guy, and he's doing great work helping keep integrity within our legal system. Stick around and listen to our conversation with Andrew. I'm Sanger Smith, as always, with my dad, Sean Smith. This is Decidedly. Andrew, thanks for being here. Gentlemen, nice to meet you virtually. Yes. You well, know, my, uh, my sister, when she went to law school, she really ruined um, my life goal of avoiding attorneys. <laughs> now just, you're just everywhere. You still so you take can't. calls from her? <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, when she when she has a, a great day in in court and wants to brag about about it, then I'll, I'll listen to her story. You know, it's not it's not all bad to have an attorney in the family. <laughs> Unfortunately, for we who are attorneys, it usually means that our family members think that we can solve every legal problem for them. And one of the first things they tell you in law school is never represent a family member. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good rule. Well, hopefully you'll never need her since she specializes in criminal defense. Yeah, she, she is criminal. <laughs> yeah, so. Not high on my list there. Yeah, thankfully. It's, uh, I got my own roll of decks of criminal attorneys that I need for other matters unrelated to my representation. You do not want to have to use her, that's for sure. Well, I see the Washington Monument in your background, so I know where you are. And you're, How did yeah. you end up in, uh, in D.C.? So I went to law school here in D.C., went to Washington University College of Law, so American U, and uh, ended up meeting my lovely wife. Uh, we both went to law school together, who was kind of from this area. And it was one of those fisher cut bait moments, and I fished. Um, so we, we, we stuck around. I would think there's a lot of whistleblower activity in D.C. Is that what uh, caused you to end up doing that type of work? No, I, I can't say that I, I mean, you know, you go to law school, they don't, uh, at least back in the 90s when I went to law school, guys, they, they didn't teach whistleblower law 101. That wasn't a thing, really. Is it a thing now? Uh, well, you'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, there's a lot more of those types of, yeah, I mean, some are 
straightforward whistleblower law classes um, wow. that you'll have in law school now. And, and increasingly what you see is a little integration of kind of subject matter specific components that are taught in law school. So you'll have an, an SEC class and they'll talk about Dodd-Frank or they'll talk about how to be, you know, what does it mean to be a whistleblower in that context or uh, a tax class. And sometimes they'll teach a little vain uh, in that regard because there are dedicated programs there. So I didn't really, you know, when I went to law school, it wasn't like I went to law school to be a whistleblower attorney. I went to law school to be an attorney. And then I kind of figured out ultimately where I wanted to land, so to speak, in terms of this particular practice. Back then in the 90s, there wasn't a lot of law firms doing this. Um, there still are not a lot of law firms nationally doing uh, the plaintiff side of, of these cases. And um, that's all that I do. And so I, I managed to just early, fairly early on uh, post-graduation, and I got my job here at this law firm, another wrinkle in the universe. I've, I think I must be the only attorney in Washington, D.C. today that has only worked at one law firm, <laughs> started here and I hope to retire here. Um, but I, I got a, a little bit of a taste of that fairly early on in, in being a practicing attorney. It's like, well, this is this kind of combines a bunch of different things that I had a lot of interest in at the time. And I continue to kind of thank the Lord every day that I you know wound up where I am. What, what is that overlap of interest or what were the interests that overlapped? It's a great question. Uh, you know, so I knew that, um, I kind of knew in some levels what I didn't want to do. And I got a, got to where I wanted to, to do certain aspects of the practice of law. So I, I knew that, you know, there are a lot of uh, attorneys, very, very capable attorneys in DC and New York, hell, all over the country that um, can represent corporate interests. And they do that vigorously and very well. Um, I, I just didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do. I understand, you know, they all need a defense, but I kind of wanted to represent the underdog in that battle. And so I had that somewhere in my head as something that I found interesting, right? It kind of gets you up every morning out of bed, rearing to go, wanting to put the long hours you have to yeah. put in as a young attorney. And then I also drew a little bit on my own family background, to tell you the truth. My father was a, a internal medicine doctor, practiced for 40 years, kind of one of those old black bag, middle of the night house call doctors. Uh, he's deceased now. But I watched his practice and, you know, there were certain things about his practice that he would kind of tell me about and just sitting around the dinner table. It's kind of amazing what you as a you know, one of seven kids, what you pick up when you're sitting around the dinner table, listening to your dad talk about a long day at work. And some things really stuck with me uh, about how he saw the intersection of the practice of medicine and the, at that point in time in the 80s, the kind of rise of uh, medicine run by you know, business administration graduates or MBEs, mm. right? And so you saw, you know, saw my own kind of family, how he had a way of dealing with patients on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And on the other hand, there was a lot of corporate pressures, insurance pressures with HMOs and 
you know, you had to kind of limit how much time you spent with patients. Or he would yeah. tell me about, you know, sales reps who would come through and they would drop all these samples on, you know, you got to use this one, Dr. Beato. This is the one you should be using. Um, well, sure. But I mean, what about that one? I mean, that one's good and it's a lot cheaper, mm. right? It's maybe even better than this other new one. Interesting confluence of factors for me personally that led me to ultimately select this. And uh, I think it drew a lot on uh, those formative early years in which I saw how it affected his practice personally. I'll tell you one, one story I remember very distinctly how he came home a little despondent one day and, you know, he wasn't an overly communicative guy, but he would every now and then drop some little pieces of information. And it was during a period of time in which uh, insurance companies would come through, they would audit your practice, right? So auditing is always a good thing if it's done the right way. But um, this was done, in my view, his view, the wrong way, because he had, he had completed the day's kind of appointments and he got the download from the auditor, who, of course, was probably pretty disruptive during the day. And one of the main things that the auditor was saying was you need to make sure that you're not spending more than six minutes with each one of these patients. You need to see them faster and get through it. And Jeez. it's my father, you know, who, who, uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish he could be here for this conversation. You guys would love him <laughs> following more or less to my recollection all these years later. Listen, I, that person that you're asking me to spend no more than six minutes with, okay, has a father who I treated for the last 25 years or whatever the number was. Yeah. I've seen her and I've seen her daughter. I've seen all of these people. And what you guys don't understand sometimes is that part of making people better, healthier, is to understand their problems other than just what's physically hurting them, yeah. right? They're, they're kind of like having a connection with your patient. Uh, and I, I think it's, you know, honestly, and I know there's a lot of wonderful advancements in how medical care is delivered in the U.S. since then, but I think we've grown a little poorer for missing that type of practice today. I can see that in um, across industries where we're asking professionals to or requiring professionals to compress the amount of time they have with the end client because yeah. of the increased regulatory burden of doing business in that industry. And yeah. that's, that is the main reason why your doctor's visit takes five minutes instead of 45 minutes. Yeah. It's because that doctor's got uh, going to have to quadruple the <laughs> amount of time he spends on spends talking to you on doing paperwork. Paperwork. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. I feel it in my industry too. It's harder and harder to provide quality service if, if unless people are willing to pay a lot of money. Oh, and, and that, you know, there's a whole issue there too, because what has happened with, that last point in healthcare is you have the rise of concierge care, which has really stratified care. I think a lot of physicians who have gone in that direction um, at greater expense for sure, um, but have essentially the model that my father had in the you know, 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it's now on a much more expensive basis than it was back then. Um, and don't get me wrong. I mean, that there's, there's certainly, I mean, regulation is effective, right? I mean, it can be healthy and it can be. Can't have can none of it. Issues. Yeah. yeah. 
but there is a balance in this. And mm-hmm. uh, I mm-hmm. saw it with him. I think it, it kind of crushed his practice. And ultimately, it was hard to, as an internal medicine doctor back then, because of those pressures, you really couldn't. It's surprising to hear, but I mean, he couldn't make a good living as a doctor. He had seven kids, but even then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, my, my, my physician went to a concierge practice, uh, gosh, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, and we went with him, you know, for the very reasons you, you were describing, you know, it's more expensive for me, but I look at it as part of just the, the insurance that I, that I'm bearing, yep. you know, what I hope is every year that I don't need to go see him very often. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, right. that's what I hope. I don't want to see too much. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I kind of don't want to get my money's worth from that, yeah, but right. <laughs> so anyway, so when you got into this area, I want to back up a little bit and tell me a little bit about what is exactly the whistleblower law, how it's protecting people. How is it an attorney getting involved? In other words, who are you protecting the client against? Who's coming after the whistleblowers, yeah. you know, I thought they're protected. So why, why do they need to hire an attorney? So first off, there isn't a single whistleblower law, uh, and I'm now talking just federal law. Okay. Uh, and what has developed, if you give me a minute to be a little more ver- verbose, surprisingly, as an attorney. So basically, here's, here's how this evolved. And it goes all the way back to Abraham Lincoln, because uh, at the end of the Civil War during Reconstruction, a law was passed, penned by Lincoln, signed by Lincoln, which basically is still one of the most effective fraud detection uh, statutes in America to this day. It's called the False Claims Act. And so that law was essentially predicated because the Reconstruction was not getting the type of quality goods to rebuild the nation, right? substandard woods, you know, there's a reference, I think, somewhere about mangy horses that are being purchased by the by the federal government. So the point was that they needed to do something that was going to prevent a lot of hemorrhaging of money from the public treasury to people and companies that were not turning the square corner with the government in dealing with them. And that was the False Claims Act. And so that existed and today, today still does exist until about 1986 when Senator Chuck Grassley up the street here um, had, uh, among others involved, but had a really brilliant idea, which was that if you can incentivize people with knowledge of fraudulent schemes that are taking money improperly out of the Treasury to come forward, you could turbocharge that law because the key thing was up until the late 19 whatever 80s a lot of that was just the United States government figuring out where in a company you know they're defrauding the government well that's a hard thing to do you really need insiders to provide that information so an amendment was made effectively to that original law in the late 80s which allowed a whistleblower the statute actually calls them a relator, but a whistleblower to provide information to the government and very short in summary, to the extent that the government claws back payment from that defendant, they can receive up to 30% of what the government 
gets back in civil penalties and fines. Flash forward to today, and you'll see that roughly, I think the last data I saw on this, $50 billion, that's with a B, has been brought back to the Treasury as a consequence of that law. It's amazing, staggering, if you think about it. So it's a huge profit center for the federal government. The more efficacious their enforcement, right, the more they can actually return the money back to the Treasury, which helps with your taxes and my taxes. I mean, that's that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. So it's been a very, very effective program. The efficacy of that program ultimately was a huge factor in taking the basic core of that law and developing uh, administrative programs, so very specific subject matters that are dedicated to the Treasury Department, IRS. IRS now has, and has had for a while, its own whistleblower law, which is very similar to that FCA law. Not identical, but very similar. Same concept. Provide information uh, to the extent it's it's bona fide, it's accurate. Um, the government will pay you on the on the back. And my, my guess is this is information that is integral to the case. Without this information, we would not have been able to get this money back. I, I, yes. And the, the, the law, basically, there's a f- famous case which talks about putting the government on the trail of the fraud. You don't have to provide all elements because sometimes, you know, when you think about an organizational structure, you may be in the accounting department, but you don't have... You know, you're not knowledgeable about other components that might Mm. be involved in a corporate scheme. And so you need to essentially have the information uh, that is going to put the government on the trail of that fraud. Okay. It's a heck of an incentive. It is. 15, what is it? The minimum is 15, right? Floor 15, uh, max of 30. And there's, I can, we can break that down. There's a lot of data that talks about how those numbers come across depending upon whether it's a settlement or, you know, whether it's a litigated case. But the key thing is there's a, I, you know, I, I kind of think of it as like incentive integrity, right? I mean, incentivize yeah. the people to come forward because a lot of times the professional repercussions of having to do this uh, are pretty profound. Um, and, and frankly, I hope we get to today a discussion about what kind of draws those people out and decides, you know, has an influence on their thought process. You saw the success of that federal law has spurned a lot of these kind of administrative agency specific programs, which have been equally successful. So the SEC has a program now and, uh, and the CFTC has a program now, and the IRS has a program now, and more recently, within the last year and a half or so, the Treasury Department has a, a uh, hopefully a very robust program they're going to implement with the same concept, different subject matter, meaning the scope of what they're focused on jurisdictionally is different. It's Bank Secrecy Act violations, OFAC violations, things that kind of historically have fallen through the cracks of those other laws and in treasury wisely with, you know, obviously Congress deciding that needed to be filled. So, you know, they all have a very common theme, which is essentially a relying upon uh, folks, insiders to come forward and 
to provide the government uh, their information. And then we work with our law enforcement DOJ partners to try to get to the bottom of those facts. And, you know, it all comes back to the credibility of the individuals who make those decisions. And that's a phenomenal decidedly topic, to tell you the truth, which is, you know, how does one decide to do that? How do you decide to do the difficult? I'm thinking that initially, correct me if I'm wrong, is that most of the people who would come forward are not coming forward for this this bounty or this revenue. I would I would think I, I would think a lot of them are coming forward because they got a social conscience or there's a safety issue or uh, some, something along those lines. So difficult to know the data on that, but I can tell you just from my own practice about knowing which clients I have talked to over the years and which ones actually decide to ultimately uh, go to the next step and actually be part of a claim. It, not all of them do. Um, and those are the ones that are have already kind of made decision tree analysis that at least I need to talk to somebody who knows as an attorney, right? They can have a confidential, you know, privileged communication. A lot of the times where I think they're kind of difficult zone is when they're within the company still and they're trying to decide, am I crazy or is this really, you know, I, they need a someone to actually objectively look at their information and tell them, um, yeah, this is a thing or no, this is not. And here's why. And of course, if it is something that has gone off the rails within a company, then you have to look at, have you, have you done the things that you would normally want to do, right? You've gone through your chain of command. You've gone to the compliance department and you'd be surprised at how many times that's done. Where people have gone up through the right channels and nothing happened. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you're, you're literally have had clients that are sitting, moved to the basement with an empty room. They are giving a, you know, a pencil, a piece of paper, do nothing, buzzing refrigerator that's not working in the corner, that type of nonsense in order to basically, you don't want to get is, is that, that kind of stuff really happens. I mean, not course I, you know i always hear sto- you always hear stories but you, i'm just if you're seeing that happen is that that's people who are sort of uh wanting to bring attention to wrongdoing within their own company or getting that sort of heavy-handed response and much heavier in times wow yeah uh, it's it's shocking if I mean, look you're not you know think about this right co- co- companies don't make bad decisions people make bad decisions right i mean right is is driven by the management tone and the executive leadership. And if at the top of a company it's tolerated and in fact perhaps complicit, it's going to be okay all the way down that this is not, you know, this is not something we're gonna get in front of and do the right thing. And so those are the people that I, I really want to try to help because those are the people who are truly up against it, right? Think about that. If you have the right ethics, the right morals, you're, you you know, something is wrong in that, whatever financial services company or that bank or that pharmaceutical company, sometimes so wrong, it can affect the health and safety of Americans, right? Yeah, right. Bad drugs. My case in Ranbaxy that I, I did a number of years ago was that model. And yet they don't want to 
as a corporate response, they don't want to own that. So it happens, uh, surprisingly. Tell me more about what happened with the pharmaceutical company. I had the great, honestly, I think it's 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 not enough for me to say pleasure of representing <laughs> uh, Dinesh Thacker. Okay, so Dinesh was yeah. is a brilliant executive and was working for a pharmaceutical company here in New Jersey and was recruited by a company in India, the name of it, Rambaxi, to kind of come back. He's of Indian origin and basically layer into a, at that point in time, the one of the top, if not the top generic drug pharmaceutical company in the world. It was, it was exporting a tremendous amount of drugs to America. And you got you have to understand the dynamic of why that is so critical. As I, over a course of seven plus years, got to understand none of us who consume drugs, for those of us who have to take prescription medication, right, have really any sense of what is in a pill. You just don't. It's a trusted relationship at its core. Sure. Yeah. My doctor I says I need to take a statin medication. He calls up to place the prescription. I go to the pharmacy. I pick it up. I guarantee you 95% of the people barely even look at the bag. They don't look at the what's on it. They don't know who makes it. It's more, I think, in time because of his case, Dinesh's case and others, it has become a little bit more of an awareness moment. But still, most people don't. It's, it stuns me to think about that. Because if you if you realize that what goes into that pill is made in a in a way which you know frequently shortcuts are taken uh, there are good pharmaceutical companies and there are less uh, in every single country and india for a period of time had a huge generic drug market because it was very profitable but when you look at how it played out in the rambaxi case itself there were a lot of problems with not making the drugs in a manner that is required, where FDA, the Federal Food Drug Cosmetic Act, it applies to the manufacturing in that plant in Devas, India, or Payonta Sahib, India, because that drug is being, being exported back to America for us to take. So he takes that job, goes back there, and pretty much realizes it started off with a an awareness that he was brought into. I won't indicate who made him aware of this, but he was aware that antiretroviral drugs that were being made by Ranbaxy were of questionable quality. And those were being purchased by the United States government through a program called PEPFAR and were being uh, essentially exported, not to America so much as to Africa. So his moment, which was like, I think the reason that tipped him was the awareness that one of those drugs, which is, uh, I believe is nifirapine, an antiretroviral drug. So that's a drug that's given, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while, but I think I'm right, to a pregnant woman to prevent the transmission of HIV in utero. So if you're not making that drug properly, right? It has some consequences. Yeah, you're going to give HIV to babies. Yeah. Right. So talk about uh, what do you do moment, right? Because you know, here's a guy who's moved his family 
out of America, back there. He's, you know, thinks he's on this phenomenal growth trajectory with a great company. And it turns out that is that data to support that drug was being fabricated. Wow. So people like that, you have to really think about how they decide to come forward. I mean, that is... Uh, there is a whole kind of psychology profile in that because every one of us would say, oh, of course, I'm going to go. Of course I'd do it. Yeah, there's no way to know. Okay, it's complicated. The way problems are solved in other countries are not the way they're solved in in the United States. You know, you have a family and you have to make very difficult decisions. So fast forward in time. um, So he came forward. He actually, I think it's another great study for my clients who I have told them the same kind of anecdote. Um, He came forward and cooperated voluntarily with the FDA for a year plus, having no idea that there was a law in America that would have allowed him to be compensated if his claim was successful. He had no idea. He was just doing it for the right motivation. In fact, his information when, when he provided that to the FDA, his information they didn't believe him. The FDA thought it was actually, you know, whatever, like a competitor is trying to, you know, shit can a, another country, a company in, in, in India, whatever they thought, they didn't believe him. So again, sometimes there are really good people who do extraordinary things under improbable circumstances. And this is a guy who did that. So government investigated, Department of Justice was involved, FDA took aggressive actions because at the core of it was violations by this company of commercial good manufacturing practices, which you can't do. Those are adulterated drugs and you can't expect taxpayers through Medicare and Medicaid and other federal programs to pay for drugs of that dubious quality. Cannot. Yeah. $500 million settlement with felony pleas. I think in retrospect, you know, knowing how it played out, he would say we did it just the way it had to be done. But I guarantee you, Sanger and Sean, there were points in time where that was very, very much in doubt. Right. Uh, Well, I bet. I I would bet that anybody going through a process like that has to balance out the their commitment to loyalty to their company and the people they work with and the, you know their employer and their commitment to morality or you know, yeah. safety and, and you know doing the right thing and so I think it's probably going to be a really challenging uh, decision yeah. for people faced with that you it reminds me of what uh, what Celeste Holbrook mm-hmm. taught us about um, her decision making framework so our friend Celeste is a therapist and she said that she'll go through this framework when she makes decisions on one hand what do i intellectually know like what are the facts and then what are what do i morally know so what's morally right or wrong and then what's my intuition and balance that out Mm -hmm. right balance Um, the three and um that's how she'll make difficult choices and i would imagine that if you're you have an opportunity to be a whistleblower um you, you know, it, I don't know whether it's the morals or the facts that are the, that are the first red flag for you. Um, but I think we're lying to ourselves, those of us who say, oh, I obviously would have the intuition to do the right thing. I don't know. 
there's probably yeah. dozens and dozens and dozens and hundreds of people who have known the facts, known them, made the right moral judgment and had the intuition and still not done it. Well, I, I think based on your attitude of the company you're reporting against or the yeah. institution you're reporting against, I may see you as as a hero or a villain. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I may take that position and say, oh, you know, you're reporting against uh, a politician I don't like. So now I think you're a hero. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting in the in his particular Dinesh's context, it was all the more complicated because uh, as he would explain to you much better than I can, you know, India, even in business, India is a caste system. And so yeah. you cannot you cannot at certain levels, just speak up against the, the top leadership of a company, not without dire consequence. But be that as it may, I assure you, and I'm not spe being specific to that case, although I could be, um, most of my cases, what you find is there are many, many people in the organizational structure who are aware of what is going on, but for whatever reason, have not decided to take that on, meaning to, to make that something that they believe they have to stand and fight on. And I'm talking about people in companies that that are dealing in healthcare, which is to me the zenith of, of when your ethics should trigger as opposed to, and I'm not saying it's any less to get into financial services of fraud or what have you, but I'm just saying those are the moments where you really question how it is possible that those other people, some of whom are actually kind of not only not saying anything, but part of the process to make your whistleblower client uncomfortable, you know, not uh, valued, basically find a way to get them the hell out of the company. It also it kind of reminds me of that, I think it's Stanley Milgram uh, experiment at Yale in the 1960s. Right. That's the obedience to authority thing. Right. Where I think Milgram's experiment essentially was, you know, if you have somebody who is told they need to administer a shock um, and somebody in authority is telling them you need to now administer that shock. I know I'm not doing great justice to Milgram's experiment. The point was, I think 65 percent of the people in that experiment were willing to dose shocks of somebody who was screaming in agony up to mm -hmm. 450 volts. So they were shocking the hell out of someone. And why was that? Well, I think one of the things they were saying is there was somebody in authority who was saying this is what needs to be done. Yeah. So how, why do the 35% decide, you know, that's not what needs to be done. I, I don't know. I, I, I commonly say to clients that the people I represent are the ones who, are not, you know, they drive down a street, they see a, they see a fire in a residential neighborhood, right? They're the ones who stop. There are going to be certain people who will stop and call 911. Maybe everyone does that. And there are going to be these types of people who will stop and they'll go inside knowing it's a personal risk, do that because there's a fire in there. Who the hell knows yeah. what's really going on? But they have that compass. They almost can't stop you know, from going in. That's why it's such a, it's such an honor to, to help them through it. You had to realize a lot of these cases that I do, well, well, in fact, for 
all of the cases for some period of time are non-public, right? So what does that mean? That means they're in certain types of cases, they're under a court-ordered seal. What that means is that the existence of, of that whistleblower having filed that matter against that company cannot be discussed by them. They can't tell their wife or their husband, can't tell their, really shouldn't be telling anyone, priest or their dog, it should be buttoned up. And they have to do that, knowing that that's part of the price of admission to make that type of claim. So I kid my, my wife about, you know, a lot of my job is as a, you know, daytime <laughs> psychologist to kind of just listen, <laughs> right? Yeah. Listen, to be the one they can talk to because I'm subject to that seal and I can, I can hear all of it, but they can't just go to the, you know, bar down the street and be like, oh, you're not going to believe this one now. It's, yeah. it's not easy to be that way. So you, you had an opportunity to work on the Credit Suisse whistleblower case a few years back, eight, yeah. nine years ago now. Tell me about that. Well, I, there's probably a lot more I cannot tell you. So <laughs> it's one of those matters in which, let me, let me kind of be delicate about how I say this. So I said how uh, administrative programs, IRS and the SEC, they are non-public. And to this day, identity of the whistleblower in that matter is not public, has never been written about, has never been something where the federal government has said it's that person over there, Mm -hmm. which is actually one of the strengths of these programs because it allows for a certain degree of kind of confidence that if you are successful in the matter, you're not going to have to deal with the repercussion uh, on the back end, the kind of gaslighting that does occur. So uh, I can't talk about the person. What I can tell you is this was a part of the cross-border fraud kind of stem of cases that the IRS had pursued. I mean, that there was a, there was a whole systematized way uh, of getting U.S. persons, which is the you know the requirement uh, for paying taxes in America, right, to understand the benefits of having those accounts at least for you know a long period of time beyond the jurisdictional reach of the United States government for tax purposes. And and, and parenthetically, it wasn't just Credit Suisse. I mean, there were many many Swiss banks uh, that were doing that. And some of those were voluntarily came forward and basically mea culpa maxima paid their fines and, you know, implemented the type of preventative measures. And then others resisted bitterly like Credit Suisse because they, whatever reasons motivated them to do that. But at the end of the day, the claim was... You cannot, as a financial institution that's doing business in America at that time, they were, they were head of office in New York. You cannot allow, knowingly allow U.S. persons to secrete assets in a foreign country in order to avoid paying Uncle Sam. So for years, the, the Swiss secrecy laws in banking, I mean, it's been pretty well known. Yeah. Why did that come to such? I mean, that's sort of their thing. Yeah. Why did that come to a head all of a sudden? I so I'm now going to get over my skis because you're you're asking a, a kind of non-legal question. Even if okay. you appreciate that, but I think that really it, it was a, just the confluence of factors, right? I mean, it was it became an unavoidable issue, and politics crept into the kind of analysis with that. Um, so I I. I 
you know, I don't ultimately know how those things get prioritized from a jurisdictional um, perspective, but um, suffice it to say, it was the right type of enforcement. In fact, I, I think that there are, to me, just from my side of the table on this, there are many, many other schemes which have as as significant impact on the United States, and they're just originating from outside the United States. And many of those are now in Asia, where you see certain types of behaviors occurring, because it gets much easier for people to de-identify uh, those types of transactions. And, and don't even get me started about crypto, because that is a bounty of money laundering activity. So there are, I mean, honestly, there are more problems than there are attorneys at the Department of Justice to deal with those types of issues. And, and then, of course, you don't even always get the luxury, even if you have interest to deal with it, because you have to deal with and other countries' politics and getting through that. That case, I mean, it, it must be, I know I know we can't talk too much about the individual, but um, when you're talking about such a big issue of fraud, yeah. um, other than the morality and the moral issue and the, the, you know, knowing that what is going on is wrong, yeah. what are the psychographic characteristics that are similar amongst your clients that motivate them other than being someone who has a strong meter for integrity well, or what have you. So I, I think there are some commonalities. Yes, ethics and morality is one. Another aspect of that, it's not exactly the same thing as accountability, right? Because there are people who are in a structure, corporate structure, who feel like there needs to be accountability for those actions, whether or not they deem that immoral or it's just, it's kind of right and wrong. And that somebody needs to be accountable for that. Sometimes it's it's actually, and I have no problem with this if they candidly will say to me, "Listen, uh, I realize this is going to be professionally complicated for me, so I need to make I need to try to monetize that, right? Because mm. they can't be employable. And so sometimes you'll have a, a a whistleblower who tells you that you know is this a claim where I can actually recover something on, and and I have to make an assessment right. as to whether not only does it fit a program that will allow for a monetization opportunity, but then you have to assess what are the likelihood, uh, what's the likelihood of that occurring, which is, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, the crystal ball is sometimes broken. You can't for always. Sure. For sure. Yeah, so, because this in, in some cases is going to trash their career. So, yes, you know, they, they've got to make sure that they're going to be okay financially if they become unemployable by virtue of, of this you know, yeah. this revelation, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. You have, uh, I mean, you know, you have kids with, uh, you have, you have whistleblowers with kids, with families and, or dependents. And, you know, they're trying to just make the best decision under very difficult circumstances, whether or not it trashes their career. I mean, you can easily reach the conclusion it's going to affect how they're being viewed within the company they're working for the bare minimum. I mean, People generally mm -hmm. get penalized for that. So, at yeah. the very least, they're going to be viewed as disloyal. Correct, and shunted into the basement <laughs> with yeah. a pencil and a piece of paper and a buzzing refrigerator. So, those things do happen. It's surprising how much um, they do happen, but they they all have a little bit of some common traits 
that drive them into those decisions. And there's a there is an evolution of that. Meaning, it, how how many times do you see someone? who you think is purely motivated by the money. I mean, even a 15% settlement or 15% of the $2.8 billion settlement. That's, (laughs) Hey, you know what? I don't, you don't, I don't think you have to have the, the, I don't think you're purely motivated by morality necessarily. Right. Well, I mean, it's, I, I have no problem with if their motivation is in part compensation, it should be because to do one of these cases, it takes a, a big amount of time, a large amount of time, right. a lot of kind of emotional investment, and it has professional risk. So, but do you ever I, think it's the only the only motivator? Well, I'd say I have I've had clients come to me, and the biggest thing that I can divine here is when I have a client who comes to me where they've started a process without my involvement yet, meaning they have made a report to the SEC or they've made a report to, you know, insert agency, OCC, whatever it is. And they have no idea that they could also do this other process that could get them a potential recovery for that information if it's it works the right way. I gave you the example of Dinesh Thacker. Clearly, he had no idea when he started that. It was done largely because he found himself in a conference room in Mumbai, literally, and he wouldn't mind me saying this, but in tears at having learned of what I told you about Nevirapine, because at that point, like, what do you do, right? The money. It's sometimes hard to really know for sure what's driving. Yeah, I I imagine it would be. But it happens. They, They definitely can have come to me without any concept of the monetary aspect of it. A lot of times when that occurs, and I, I, so I, I don't typically hold myself out to doing employment law, right? So my clients are whistleblowers. And so there's a, often an intersection of employment issues and being a whistleblower. But I typically take cases where it's a whistleblower that has some employment issues they need to get through as opposed to just an employment issue. So there are cases out there where just on a kind of pure employment basis, which I think aren't always driven by money. They're just trying to, you know, get protection from the kind of top coming down on them. When we look at the decision to to come forward and to make it official, you know, go go from beyond sort of mentioning it to my supervisor, my coworker. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of make this official. Yeah. What does someone have to know? in order to be able to move forward and make that sort of a whistleblower type case? So I would say, and this sounds self-serving, but it it really is honestly uh, my best advice. You can't make that decision generally on your own. You really need to have, you need to have a consultation with somebody who understands what that means. I I don't think uh, those types of decisions when made subjectively, because you're, they're in the middle of it. Right. They just know that tomorrow I got to walk into the office and either I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. Right. That is a difficult set of circumstances for anyone to have steely eyed judgment about what's the best decision here. Right. They need to they need to have somebody who's been through the drill before an attorney like me. There are other whistleblower attorneys out there who can kind of separate out what the options are and really. Um, strategically make the best decision for them. All too often, I think, you know, there's a reflexiveness to those reactions and by an employee. And part of, part of 
preserving the strength of your case and, and deepening the the claim is to make sure that you are making every effort to document and memorialize things that occur and to make sure that you can provide that information to the government in the course of the investigation. Really, the first thing they need to do is get a good, competent, seasoned attorney to take a look at that with them. Do you find that people change their mind when they do they start the process and uh, say, oh, you know what, the, the cost of this is greater than I imagined. I want to decide not to not to move forward. There are a lot of soul searching discussions. I mean, in that one case, we've been focused on a lot today. Uh, that Rambaxi case that went on for over seven years. Oh, wow. Jeez. Okay, so, oh, you know, yeah, I, no, I, there's going to be one day in that course of seven years. More than go, one. Come on, Andrew. <laughs> right, exactly. So, I mean, but if I said to you guys on day one, listen, I think that the chances of this being successful, though it will take years, is, you know, very, very, very high, are very high. And if it is successful, it's not, a, you know, a zero or a hundred dollars. It may be something much, much larger. Most of us would kind of evaluate that sure. as a long-term play and they may want to ultimately so to speak make that investment in in that it's easier when it's when you're dealing with the types of facts there because in the worst case scenario right even if you're not successful after seven years if he if that client got nothing financially here's what he would have known he would have known that he had a sea change of corrections at those facilities that were exporting those drugs to America, that they had to they had warning letters from the FDA. They had the unique application of a very seldom used doctrine called an application integrity policy by the FDA. There are things that effectuate a change, but most of the time, when you're you know in year three of seven, right, and and I'm taking calls at time change whatever two in the morning because where is this headed? Those are, those are very, very difficult, as I said to you. And those aren't conversations they're going to have with their significant other. Those have to be directed to me. So, yeah, there are definitely moments in which you have to make sure that they understand. It's never as high nor as low as the prevailing mood of the moment. You just got to get through it. Do you find that there's an increased number of whistleblower cases or people sort of bringing things forward as opposed to maybe 10, 15 years ago? Absolutely. And, and the trend is more and more. Now, I, I think it, it, it is in part that way, Sean, because there is a larger number of programs that allow for those opportunities to happen. It's been a mm -hmm. broadening up of the base that way. And I, but in, so in some respects, it's kind of two countervailing forces. I think that, so to speak, some industries, whether, you know, whether it's somebody regulated by the SEC, they now understand to avoid the consequence of some of those multi-billion dollar cases, which did occur, that was part of one, you have to have the right procedures in place, right? And that has to be up and down the line. So I think there has been not just a burgeoning of cases, but also kind of a course correcting behavior for companies that are resistant to kind of repeat the same problems. Now, I will say that almost in a contradictory way in the same breath, that there are recidivist violators that time and again have violated the law. And so there is, I've been told this from people, senior people at companies that are very, very 
significant companies. It's a cost of doing business at some point, right? I mean, if I said to you today, okay, Sean Sanger, you're going to make a billion dollars off of this scheme. Doesn't comply with the law. If we're detected, and maybe there's a 90% chance we're not going to get detected, you're going to pay probably 10% of that back to the government on fines, but it will take about five or seven years. Well, I'd like to believe everyone would say to that, no, I can't do that, but I don't think that's true. I think that there are companies that decide to just plow forward. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I get calls about my extended credit warranty all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I know they're not supposed to be calling me, but they do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And those types of, I mean, there are so many variations of the same scheme. I, I, I once had this conversation with a fellow practitioner, a whistleblower attorney, how, you know, if you really kind of boil down all of these cases over decades of time, there's kind of like a dozen fraud schemes. I call you know, good fraud schemes. They're all very of the same thing. And whether it's a car warranty or, you know, crypto, it's kind of variation off the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the decisions that you've got to make as a, an attorney to make a case like this successful? It's a good question because, you know, not a lot of law firms have a shop like ours, meaning uh, I'm kind of uh, anathema to a lot of law firms because I tend to go after companies and, you know, bigger law firms don't really like that. Um, what do you mean? But what do you mean they don't like they don't like going after companies? Well, it's a business conflict or a direct conflict. Right. Um, so, I mean, the, the, on the other side of my cases are some very, very large, if not the largest law firms in the country. Many of them are kind of in my surrounding area around me here Yeah. Um, that, you know, have. Oh, you mean they represent they might represent these larger companies that are the offenders, of course, or they represent, uh, they represent the industry and in you know, those law firms don't want to be seen as, uh, on the one hand, trying to defend an industry from attacks by, so to speak, whistleblowers. On the other hand, then sponsoring a whistleblower through that process. They won't do that, generally speaking. I know the risk of great generalization that has been my... No, that makes sense. I mean, and I don't fault those companies. I don't think they're moral failures for not playing both sides of the fence. No, I don't either. that's, Uh, That's fine. Uh, I think that, you know, we all, you know, have to practice the type of law that brings us the highest degree of, you know, insert ellipses as to what it is you get out of that. Right. It's just what you what you want to do. It's what makes sure. fulfillment. I, I personally think that what I do uh, and what my firm has done in this space has been value added in something that, uh, you know, when I look back on my career, hopefully a long time in the future, I'll feel like I, I help make a difference. I don't really care too much about finding ways to get a company into a position to delay the payment of inevitable. It doesn't do it for me. So when I look at these cases, you have to have the right type of you know partners. I have great partners who understand that the, you know, these are contingent cases, so you have to invest in them, right? Like if I can work seven years on that one case that we talked about, yeah, yeah. there are going to be times when it doesn't work. Uh, and, you know, you, you don't have an intervention by the government or you, you don't have a successful outcome in a, in a trial. And, and those are, you know, the risks of being in this type of space. And so, yes, you have to really process 
in your case selection, which are the good cases, which ones based on your experience, will you have the ability to kind of get the government interested in the case so that they understand it? Bear in mind that the Department of Justice, for for that matter, all of those agencies we've been talking about have thousands and thousands of these claims, thousands and thousands of these claims. And not all of those claims have the same merit, of course, right? So you have to you have to kind of make sure that you're triaging cases in a way that brings your meritorious case up to the top of their attention. I really appreciate you being on today, Andrew. It's been, um, been fun. Yeah, I've learned a lot. Where can people uh, find more information on you and your firm? My website, our firm's website, www.steinmitchell.com. You can click through. There's a practice section for whistleblower practice. You can find me on there as well. And I tend to probably be the most responsive on either emails or just dial up the main number here at the shop. Thanks for spending time with us. We appreciate care, it. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Time with you. Take care. He made a comment, which I really liked, and he he talked about that companies don't make bad decisions. People make bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And it brought it home to me that when we look at making decisions, it's the easy thing is to not do anything, to say, well, that's my company doing that. That's not me. I can do the right thing, but they're not doing the right thing over there. And it's an easy decision to not do anything. But I think you balance morality with loyalty and a lot of people have loyalty to their organization their company mm-hmm. their association the government agency whatever it is and i think it's important to, to sort of relabel loyalty not to that organization but loyalty to your values and say these are my values i'm going to have loyalty to my values and that supersedes whatever loyalty to a a company or organization you may you may feel like you had when we do not hear the authoritative voice of god distinguishing right from wrong, then we listen to the authoritative voices of man. I think that um, my biggest takeaway from our conversation was what I call the Holbrook Triangle. What we learned from Dr. Celeste uh, several months ago, balancing the three areas of decision-making, what what do I intellectually know? What are the facts? What do I morally know? What's right and wrong? And then what is my intuition? What is my gut saying? That's something certainly that The whistleblowers have to grapple with a lot to balance that out when they're making a very big life-altering decision to pursue to pursue justice sometime at a great cost to themselves and i think we can apply that to a lot of big decisions in our lives how do i balance the intuition the knowledge and the morality of the choices that i'm facing you just made a great decision to listen to this episode of decidedly make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.